Hey everybody, Bees with Ben. Got a big, big episode today. I've got someone really super special and it's taken a little bit to uh, to get her online because she's obviously busy and Christmas and everything. Now I've got a, a farmer, she's a scientist. She is 2015's Young Farmer of the Year. I have Dr. Anika Molesworth. Thank you so much for your time, Anika. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Ben. This is, I'm super excited. So you're, you're a fellow uh, Melbourneian. That's correct. You started off life in Melbourne. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I did grow up in Melbourne. Um, but now I'm living in Broken Hill, well, near Broken Hill on my family sheep station. So, wow. So that'd be about, that's a long way from Melbourne, isn't it? It's about a thousand, thousand kilometres? <laughs> it's a bit of a hike, yeah. A bit, bit, <laughs> bit of a hike. Um, so, so how did that, so when did you move up there? So when did the family, how did that all start off by, um, you know, the, the wonderful world of farming? Yeah, so my parents purchased our farm in the year 2000, so I was 12 years old, I was still going to school in Melbourne, and we did a bit of a holiday trip up to Broken Hill, and just fell in love with the place. I mean, I don't know if you've been to far western New South Wales, but it is a starkly beautiful part of the country, you know, a place of ruby red sands, of sapphire blue skies, where wedge-tailed eagles, you know, glide above the sky, and in a good season, there's wildflowers carpeting the ground. It's truly a magical landscape. Oh, that's beautiful. And so, yeah, so we, we purchased the farm um, and fell in love with this, this landscape, the history, and, you know, started designing our future out here. Um, but one of, the, <laughs> one of the main things is that the year 2000 was the start of the decade-long millennium drought. Yes, and so uh, it was those initial years on the farm that learning about how dependent people are on a healthy ecosystem, on a healthy natural world, that really raised my awareness of um, you know, those connections um, and propelled my career and interest in the environment and then more specifically onto climate change. Interesting. And so with this, um, this sheep station, how big is it? Sort of give us a bit of an idea as the size of the property. Yeah, so we've got 10,000 acres here. Wow. And we, 10,000 yeah, acres. Stocked, wow. <laughs> we stocked it with an African breed of sheep. Um, firstly, Damaras and then Dorcas. And they're quite drought tolerant or quite, you know, hardy sheep, well suited to semi arid environments. And then also in this part of the country, there are feral goats or rangeland goats. And when they walk onto your property, you can catch them, harvest them. And so they're our two primary sources of income. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Now, Dorpers—they're the ones that um, are they the ones that like uh, self-shear? Their their wool falls off. Exactly. Yes, they have hair which they shed like a dog. So quite different from the European breed of sheep, which we are all familiar with, which need to go into a shearing shed and have their wool shorn off. That's interesting. Wow, incredible. And what sort of numbers? Like, obviously, it fluctuates with breeding cycles and so forth. But what's an average sort of numbers of like ewes or something you have on? Yeah, so we very much fluctuate with seasonal conditions. So when okay. seasons are, you know, top notch, we would have about a thousand sheep out here. Unfortunately, for the last five years, we've been in drought, and so we're running about thirty sheep now. Thirty. Yes. Wow. So really, so it's just because of the the, the harsh conditions of of this um, of the weather and so forth and the drought, really. Yeah, absolutely. So it's. It's naturally a hot and dry bioregion in, in this part of the country, uh, but it's becoming increasingly hotter and drier. And so as responsible land managers, you, you run your stock depending on the seasonal conditions. 
And as it's been getting quite hot the last few summers, as we've been getting less and less rainfall, we've made that decision to run fewer and fewer livestock um, and to a point now where we're pretty much destocked completely. Really? So, And, and is that a, is that just for the moment because of weather conditions? You're planning on increasing those numbers down the track, Anika, or, or just diversifying, doing something else? Yeah, these are the conversations that we're having around the kitchen table, actually, as to what does the future hold for the property? Yes. Because as a, a scientist, as someone who's very interested in climate change, I spend a lot of time looking at the projections, what's going to happen in 10, 20, 50 years' time, what are the temperatures going to be, what's the rainfall likely to be. Um, and under the current you know, climate trajectory, things are going to get hotter and drier in this part of the world. And so one has to wonder, as a responsible custodian of the land at this point in time, what's the best thing to do? Is it to be running sheep out here or is it to be looking at something that's quite different? And, you know, of course, I think we need to be looking at things that are quite different in this day and age, sort of thinking a bit outside of the box, being creative of how do we produce food for a rapidly growing world um, in a climate constrained world too. So that's wow. That's that's really fascinating. It's um. So so people are going to be asking, you know, Ben, what's you know, uh, this is a bee podcast, <laughs> um, and I know you love honey and and you love bees, but but it's um. So obviously the, the, this climate change it affects all of us, and um, as, as from a, a sheep that weighs you know thirty forty kilos to a, to a bee that weighs one tenth of a gram, you know, they both get affected. So. So, so talk us about, you know, obviously you're, you're the 2015 Young Farmer of the Year. Um, you're obviously a scientist. What, what sort of holds the future that your you know, predictions or what you're seeing? So tell us all about that. Mm. So the health of society is inextricably linked to the health of our natural world. And so we need a proper functioning, healthy ecosystem. And an ecosystem is everything. It is, you know, having fertile soils. It's having a diversity of plant life. It's having the incredible pollinators. It's having the native wildlife like kangaroos and emus walking across the landscape. And then it's humans being able to produce food. Um, you know, having that privilege to grow food that nourishes our communities. But farmers can't do that if we have ruined the foundations of our natural world. So we are absolutely dependent on having good soils, water resources, that abundance of biodiversity. And so it's, it's very much interlinked. If we lost bees or pollinators, or if we lost carbon from the soil, these things have huge flow-on effects, um, sort of like a domino effect. Like it, yeah. it, it impacts everything. Um, I often go to the city and people... Um, sort of say, oh, you know, what does the drought mean? I mean, how does it impact me? Well, you know, the drought impacts, you know, the meals on your plate. It, it impacts food everywhere. And this is what we're seeing with climate change in that we're seeing more frequent and intense extreme weather events like droughts and floods and bushfires. We're seeing changes in weather patterns. Um, you know, seasonal cycles are changing. That's changing the abundance um, and species diversity of native creatures. And when these sort of these threads in the food system and, you know, the environment start to, you know, fragment and fall apart, 
then we have these adverse ripple effects. So all of us need to be working very closely to make sure that we don't degrade our environment, um, that we look after everything from the pollinators to the sheep, to the emus and kangaroos. So we have that, that well-functioning ecosystem that can produce nutritious, abundant food for everyone. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a, I suppose it's not really, is there one answer to this or is it like a multiple answers? How would you sort of... Yeah, yeah how would there's, you? there's definitely not one answer. So yes, climate change and you know the whole ecosystem is, is incredibly complex, but I think it's incredibly beautiful in its complexity too. Um, and yeah, understanding how it's, it is all interconnected, I think is incredibly important and with, as we go forward. We can't look at uh, you know, challenges or issues in isolation. We can't work on them in a fragmented manner we actually need to pull all our ideas and resources and um, you know, expertise from different sectors, whether it's you know, me in agriculture, someone working in arts and um, you know, film, or you working with bees and you know, communications. We actually need to come together and work out how do we you know, leverage off each other and you know, get, get the best for our environment. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, totally, totally agree. And and what about like say one thing? Obviously, as a beekeeper, and is like obviously the usage of chemicals, and that that necessarily pesticides, but it could be fungicides mm. and, and and herbicides. Do you, you know that's obviously a problem? Um, do you see obviously with um, on a sheep station? Is there anything like that? There's problems, or is it you know more like any sort of chemical yeah. usage and that type of thing? Uh, so on my family sheep station where we run it in or, an organic manner, okay. so we don't actually awesome. use um, yep. yeah, chemicals and pesticides and things. Um, but yes, this is sort of part of the, the whole food system story. Um, and again, the challenges that we face are right from paddock to plate. And using that example of, okay, well, pesticides, why are people using pesticides? Because yes we have disrupted the ecosystem um, and there are, you know, potentially we have removed beneficial insects and there's a growing abundance of ones that we term, you know, negative or harmful insects. And so we are applying these pesticides, some synthetic, some organic and as such. At the food, you know, at the consumer end, if people are demanding, I don't know, cheap food and they want food you know, always in abundance and, you know, to be grown in a very quick and industrial manner, um, then the farmer at the, at the paddock end, they have to produce food quickly yes. and as cheaply as possible. And so potentially those behaviours or those practices are not in the best interest of the environment that they're working with. Yes, yeah, it's, that's so so interesting and, and fascinating. I totally, totally agree. I suppose, but also too, when you look at, food like say your your sheep station's organic but you, you'd get more money per per kilo body weight for the sheep too wouldn't you like it's, it's being a, a better product I, I liken that to the reason why that popped in my head is um you go to the butcher shop or you go to say safeway you get a cheap um sirloin steak but you can go to a, a butcher and get like a cape grim or a wagyu steak that's obviously more expensive but it's um a far better you can't it's like chalk and cheese you know what i mean the flavor and the taste and so forth so, so yeah, ex yeah, exactly. So 
often organic products, um, products that have those, you know, greener ethical certifications can request or demand a premium and consumers sometimes are prepared to pay a premium because that, you know, ethical, environmentally responsible product aligns with their values. Yes, exactly. That's so, yeah, I, um, yeah, totally, totally agree. And, um, and a book. So you're working on a, a book as well, Anika, which is, t- tell, us, yeah, tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so very excitingly, the last 12 months, I've been hiding away like a little hermit, yes. um, <laughs> writing my book. And the book is about the food system and climate change. And I've been interviewing people right along the food system from farmers, nutritionists, uh, chefs, scientists, advocates, to learn about how climate change is impacting the food on our plate and what can we do about it. And I have been so, you know, I have felt so privileged and honoured to listen to people's stories and ideas, to learn about, you know, the fear and worry that people have, but also the hope and the optimism and determination people have to make the world a better place. So the book is currently with the copy editor at the moment. So awesome. having, you know, yeah, the grammar and the spelling checked over and <laughs> tidied up a bit. And hopefully the book will be on bookshelves sort of uh, end of August, start of September is where, when we're aiming for. Uh, that is awesome. That is fantastic. Well, I'm super excited. So, um, so, and what Thank I'll do, you. what I'll do is I'll, I'll put your uh, your website in the show notes, so um, so people can look out for that. And uh, when it becomes available, I'll uh, I w- I'll buy a copy. I want a copy from Amazing. you. Amazing. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> and I want to sign copies. So, and I'll uh, I'll put that Absolutely. on. I'll put that on there, and, and you'll do a bit on Instagram and Facebook. Once again, I'll put your uh, details uh, on there, which is um, which is super super cool. Do you think? Brilliant. Do you think as far as, I guess, with um, climate change uh, with different countries, you know, Australia, are we, in a, are we in a good place when you compare to, say, you've done lots of travelling, um, mm. you know, Australia, we're in a good place t- as opposed to, say, some other countries, more developing countries? That, mm. you know, how do you find that? Yeah, interesting question. So Australia has one of the high, uh, highest variable climates of any country in the world. So we naturally have, you know, um, these peaks and troughs in rainfall and temperature and these extreme uh, weather events that we, we know of so well, um, which has made Australian Australians in general and Australian farmers incredibly adaptive and resilient. And we've always sort of worked with these tougher conditions. You know, we, we naturally have quite uh, infertile soils here. We naturally have quite an unstable climate system. Uh, the problem with climate change is that it sort of exacerbates these extremes and it makes it even more challenging for farmers and Australians to, to cope with them. Australians, though, I guess we do have a bit of a, a luxury in that we're a, a developed country. We have a stable political system, yes. a fairly good economic system. So we have a bit of buffering in that capacity in that we have generally the financial resources to deal with extreme weather events. Um, we also have very good access to new information and technology. So we're able to adapt quite quickly. When you look at developing nations, and I do a fair bit of work in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly Laos and Cambodia with subsistence farmers there, they have very limited uh, land resources. You know, they're working on half an acre plot. 
Um, it's usually just the family members. They have very low financial resources. They're some of the poorest uh, farmers in the world. So when they get hit by a flood or an insect outbreak or even a family illness, they tumble further into hardship okay. and it becomes very difficult for them to then break out of that poverty cycle. Interesting. So, yeah, climate change, I mean, it's impacting different parts of the world in different ways. Um, where I am in Broken Hill, it's becoming hotter and drier. Um, some places around, you know, the equator might be experiencing more intense downpours of rain. Um, and then obviously that impacts the food producers in so many different ways, whether they're being hit with more frost or more heat waves or they're noticing different pests and diseases coming onto their crops or into their livestock systems. And so these farmers are trying to adapt in different ways. Interesting. And so, Anika, with the, on the climate change, uh, is there, are we putting this down predominantly to carbon emissions from you know, cars, you know, hospitals and this that type of thing? Is that, is that what we're sort of... Is, yeah, is, so, is, yeah. yeah, every person and every sector has a carbon footprint. Yes. But different sectors have, you know, larger or smaller carbon footprints. So here in Australia, the energy sector is the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. And pretty much what climate change is, is that we're taking carbon that has been stored in the soil or you know, deep into the ground over millennia um, and we're, we're digging it up and we're burning it. Um, and fossil fuels is the term we refer to as coal, oil and gas. And so when we burn this, we're putting that carbon that was stored in the earth into the atmosphere. And that forms a, it's like a blanket that wraps around the earth and it keeps us warmer and warmer the more carbon we put up there. So radiation from the sun comes into uh, Earth's atmosphere, but it can't escape, just like a greenhouse, like the name suggests, of the greenhouse gases. So we're heating up the atmosphere, and that does various things. I mean, it, it heats up the ocean as well. Um, it causes the ocean to become more acidic, uh, which has uh, you know significant impact on um, ocean life. Uh, you know, it's it increases uh, ice melt and glacier melt, which increases sea levels. It changes the abundance and distribution of animals and insects. Uh, so it has like a huge flow on effect. But also agriculture and food production is a key player on in the topic of climate change. Okay. In that, in an agricultural system, we're producing methane from ruminants. We're producing nitrous oxide from the use of nitrogen fertilizers on our crops. We're also, you know, tilling the soil and using the soil um, and removing vegetation, uh, and that releases carbon into the atmosphere. So we're a primary contributor to climate change. We're also one of the most vulnerable and exposed sectors to the impacts of climate change. But most excitingly, we're also the key player in the solutions. Okay. So when we talk about climate change solutions, we talk about carbon sequestration projects of, you know, growing more trees and vegetation to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, there's an abundance of work being done in the food sector 
to reduce our emissions, and that's incredibly exciting. Yes, and it's interesting you bring that up because um, now, Anika, don't throw rocks at me, but you know my diesel bill on average is about three to four hundred dollars per week mm-hmm. because of the amount of yeah, driving. Wow. I, yeah, the amount of driving I do, yeah. checking on bees. You know, there's a few yep. of us that sort of do that. So, so don't throw rocks at me that <laughs> putting these. I always think of that. Remember the? Um, I haven't seen it for a while. Actually, I don't own a TV anymore. I just don't have time to watch it. But remember, there was the old um, advert with the the black balloons. You know, what I mean of. The, the carbon, remember that? There was only like a commercial. Oh, I don't know if I saw that. No, nah, it was like a commercial for, um, um, yeah, what was that? It was uh, someone will be able to know and probably message me. Mm. No, but it was like a, how much balloons something come out. They use these black balloons of every time you use ah, like the dryer okay. and that type of thing. And you know, I think it might be 10, 10 years ago. But anyway, it's, uh, I always think of me, you know, I'm, I'm like obviously, you know, I rent my bees out for pollination and mm. obviously produce a small amount of honey. And do that type of thing, and and actually go around saving bees in and around Melbourne, but and, yep. and I'm spending so much money on obviously diesel, but obviously there's a negative aspect to that diesel. So so that's what would you say for me to be as a beekeeper and doing lots of travelling and doing that type of thing? What would you recommend something like me or you know I've got commercial beekeepers who are a lot bigger, you know, ten hundred times bigger than me. Mm-hmm. What, what could they do that would be better, or how can we be better? as far as beekeepers? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a, a beautiful question to ask. And it's, it's looking at, okay, well, what as an individual can I do? And no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And whether it's sort of a small tweak in, um, yeah, in your transport, uh, in your energy system, in your house, whether it's to do with diets, whether it's to do with the environment and landscape you're managing, most people can identify something that they can, you know, slightly improve on. Yes. And it's, it's those small steps that we can take as individuals that have these ripple effects. And when we talk about these small steps that we're doing, whether it's, okay, well, I'm going to recycle or I'm yes. going to set up a worm farm or I'm going to put solar panels on my house or drive less. And we tell someone about it and, you know, potentially they feel motivated by those actions too, or they realize the benefits of, oh, wow, you've saved how much money from those solar panels on your roof yes. or, uh, you know, by riding the bike instead of driving or, um, oh, wow, you know, you're creating this little microclimate by planting those trees around your house. There are so many benefits that actually come from looking after our environment. And I think it's an incredible story that we should be, you know, promoting and championing and encouraging each other to look at what we can do as individuals. Yeah, I always think, um, yeah, I totally, totally agree. And and if we, as you're saying, if we all do our little bit, you know, I mean, no matter what it is, and we all try and help. Uh, what about um, uh, electric cars? Is that part of an answer or, or obviously creating electricity is just another um another sort of carbon offset, carbon problems. Yes. So I guess at the moment, because Australia is so dependent on fossil fuels and coal in particular, our energy system is based on it. Um, Yes, it's brilliant to have electric cars, but if we're empowering them with coal, it's sort of doing away with some of the, the goodness that comes with the electric car. And so this is why we need to absolutely transform our energy system in entirety to something that is a lot more environmentally friendly and renewable energy is the answer. And 
the brilliant thing about this is that Australia is the sunniest and one of the windiest continents on Earth. So there is huge potential for us to be running our homes, our businesses, and our vehicles off clean, renewable energy that will never get used up, which doesn't produce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And for farmers, farmers who have expansive parcels of land, if they can host solar panels and wind turbines and have the opportunity to sell that energy into the grid, well, that's a secondary and stable source of income. That's an income that helps them ride out the rough times like the drought. That makes them more financially secure. That keeps rural people in rural towns and, you know, vibrant, healthy um, local economies. So you can see that there's a, a flow of benefit that comes from thinking about how to do things better. Yes, and it's funny to talk about like with the wind energy. Um, once again, I do lots of driving and heading towards out near Wanthaggy. Um, oh, there's yeah. obviously there's the uh, the wind farms out there, and I think those wind turbines. You know, some people go, "Oh, they're an eyesore." I think they look brilliant. Like you know, the way because if I don't know if anyone's sort of been up and close near them, they're massive, and they're just and it's absolutely incredible. And I think as humans, we're absolutely yeah yeah. I mean, I think, I think they look quite innovative and like it's sort of like exciting sort of looking at the wind turbines and going yeah that's how we should be producing uh energy for the future i mean if you look at a coal plant there's something a lot less attractive from (laughs) that there is it's so so true and it's so funny because i go through out in gippsland um it's the loyang where they've got the uh the coal plants out there and once again very Mm. impressive because of the size but you see you know this pollution and and this big mm. dirty hole in the ground or multiple dirty holes in the ground that's yeah so it's um where you see the wind turbines i think it's absolutely fantastic so and what about i guess what what do you what's your prediction uh, i don't know if that's the right word anika but what's what's your in, in you know the australia look at australia for the next 10 20 50 years yeah so look you can look at the the climate science and, you know, the state of the environment and feel quite overwhelmed by it all. And you look at the projections and you go, oh, like, it, it's pretty bad. Like, it's, this is a pretty serious issue that we're grappling with. And I find a lot of people sort of falling into that sense of, like, you know, despair of, you know, how much damage we have actually done and how much disruption. And... They're natural emotions to feel when you sort of feel the intensity of bushfires and droughts and you look at, you know, the loss of species. It can be very upsetting. But what excites me and what keeps me optimistic is that there are so many opportunities just within our reach. Tackling climate change, it's not an issue of technology or know-how or practices We've got the technology. We know what to do. This is just a matter of people getting their act together, enough people making the social change, you know, asking their political leaders to put in place, you know, uh, renewable energy projects, you know, supports them instead of the fossil fuel industry. Um, It's about, you know, putting solar panels on the kids' roof. It's about looking at our diets and, checking the labels to see whether it is it's come from Australia, whether it's in season. And by just making those small tweaks, that has huge, huge, you know, positive benefit for all of society and most importantly, 
our environment. It ensures the healthy ecosystem which we are completely dependent upon. That's yeah, and it's so interesting about you brought about the food. Yeah, you mentioned about the food, like say cherries. You know, I mean, the middle of winter here in Australia, getting mm. cherries from I don't know California or or um, Argentina, wherever they come from, is so and and just actually not is making choosing not to have what you're recommending is choosing not to have them because obviously that carbon imprint of shipping tons and tons and tons of cherries from another country to Australia that, that makes sense, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So different foods have different carbon footprints. And so generally speaking, if we select local produce, uh, produce that's in season, um, nutrient dense foods, you know, avoiding highly processed foods with lots of packaging and plastic. Um, and also importantly, not wasting food. Here in Australia, I think we throw out like one in four supermarket bags of food every time we go to a shop. Like we have a huge, um, you know, compulsion to waste food in this country. And if we didn't waste that food, then, um, you know, we don't waste those resources that went in producing it. We don't create those extra greenhouse gas emissions. And we can all do a better job of wasting food. I mean, that's a pretty easy thing that we can make a change at the dining table to serve a bit of a smaller food portion and package up the leftovers and put it in the freezer, we can also help reduce food waste. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and um, so with you mentioned with the food, like the carbon foot uh, print, is there a unit we can measure this? I don't know, just an idea. Is, you know, I mean, to say, okay, this tin of cherries coming from from Italy at 500 grams from there to here, is there, a, is there like a unit of measure? Because that would be an idea of... Yeah, so there have been different studies done by different research groups and different organizations. Um, so yeah, have a, a play around on, on the internet and see what you can find. Um, some will be more specific to, you know, your location or your food type. Um, but yes, I don't know them off the top of yes, my head. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And uh, last question, Anika, was, and what's the, what's the plans for the future for you? So obviously... You know, you're still working on the book and, and you're going to get that uh, out, hopefully springtime. Um, but what about yep. the future? What's the future hold for you, Anika? Well, I mean, I, I love being in rural Australia. I love going for walks every day, you know, in the landscape, in my farm. And I feel such a deep sense of belonging and connection here. And with that sense of connection, I feel a deep sense of responsibility to look after it. And so a lot of my work is about sharing this story, you know, my love of home and nature, helping to educate people with the science, climate change science specifically, um, and also help people to feel empowered that, yes, we are facing some really big, serious issues, but let's not feel overwhelmed and full of doom. Let's actually look at what inspiring work is being done by so many millions of individuals around the world and let's feel hopeful about this future. Anika, you are absolutely amazing, and you are inspiring. So I just want to say a big thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure to chat with you.